All right, if you're, if you're in on it, you know that we're reading the Community Bible Experience, the books of the Bible, the New Testament. According to my bookmark, we just have weeks seven and eight left. You were almost there. This is good. Good work, everybody. Uh, and, in fact, you made it through almost all the Gospels by this point, too, so even better work. I'm having fun. I hope you are, too. That's what I hear is that people are having fun. We're going to dig, in, dig into the Gospel of Mark just a little bit today. Uh, we'll focus in on Mark 6, 45 through 52. In a lot of ways, it's a thumbnail is what we're going to do with it rather than dig super deep into that one text. I want to look at Mark, but we use this our, as our example and, and text to kind of ground us this morning. Interestingly, I don't know uh, what you've paid attention to over the last few decades in the world of New Testament studies, but uh, over the last few decades, people try to add things to the New Testament, if you've ever noticed. Uh, different Gospels of different names, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas. I would never advocate adding any of those. And if you ever read them, which you can read them online, they don't look like the Gospels that we have in the canon of Scripture. But what's, what's interesting is if you read some of those that people have tried to put forward over the years to add, there are a lot of one-liners in there. They look like a different sort of genre entirely, not like the Gospels themselves. And they kind of have these little one-line lines that Jesus supposedly said in some cases. They just don't look the same. Now, you can find that sort of thing within the, the scripture that we have in the book of Proverbs, for instance. You find one and two liners, you know, they're, and they're almost sermons in themselves and stories. But one of the interesting things that I think the gospel writers recognized and the world that they lived in is we live by story, not simply by little points that we make along the way. And it's really evidenced in our day and age right now. Uh, When I was a kid, social media worked out like passing notes in class. I don't know if you were that way too. That's what we did. We passed notes. And I've watched the evolution of that come along over the years. Instant Messenger came out when I was in middle school and we wasted way too much time on that. And it was totally pointless in so many ways. Facebook and MySpace and all these others have come along. Snapchat stories. And now Facebook is trying it too. But, but the idea is we live by story. This is compelling to us. This is what moves us and drives us. And, and I'll give you an example. Um, I could give you, and you could take away the sermon points today, but you'll remember the stories. That's why I use stories uh, in sermons. So the most commented on story that I've used in my preaching happened about a year ago, give or take. And I talked about our oldest daughter wanted to get club crackers for her classroom because uh, her teacher had club crackers for kids who they had a late lunch, so they had a snack. And uh, for kids who either couldn't afford it or forgot, she kept club crackers. And so our oldest said, can we go to the store and get some club crackers? She's running out. I said, sure, let's be generous. This is good that my daughter wants to do this. Uh, I'm a frugal person, so we got there and we're standing there. And I know how much club crackers cost, but it's always sticker shock. They are really expensive to get club crackers. And we're standing there and I'm getting the sticker shock. We grab the box. Okay, we've done our thing. And she says, Dad, can we get two? And I'm just like, oh, that's going to cost a lot of money because they're so expensive for club crackers. But I'm like, my daughter wants to be generous, for goodness sakes. Of course we can buy two. Of course we can buy two. And here's the response that you all gave me. Some of you commiserated with me on the expensive and uh, high price of club crackers. Some of you texted me where the best deals were for club crackers that week or emailed me. But the story resonated. You wouldn't be able to tell me a single point from that sermon. But you, just, you remember the story. You see, we live by story, don't we? 
This is what resonates with us. And that's what we get in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're telling us the story of Jesus, not just the one-liners of Jesus. And when you look at uh, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic Gospels, with one eye is what that means. They see the world roughly the same way. And Mark appears to be the foundation for that. And when you look at Mark specifically, you see that this is a story with a point. Maybe it's not the way we would tell the story. In our world, in our day and age, we, we tell stories a little different. If we're going we're to go chronological quite often, and if we're going to tell something about the importance of a thing, if you're watching a TV show, what do they do? Flashback, right? It's a different color, or they use the wavy lines, or whatever they're going to do. Mark tells it just a little bit differently when he's giving us the story. But he's telling us the story in a specific way. He's assuming some things, not just in the points, in the whole picture of what he's doing. He's, he's showing us assuming the history of Israel and of God's covenant promise to Israel being fulfilled in Jesus. That's what's not just in the parts, but in the very structure of the book. A scholar I really like, who is a Mark scholar, points out that really if you were to look at Isaiah, you would see a lot of what Mark is picking up. That was the text of choice in the ancient world for the day and age of Jesus. They would look back to Isaiah. Mark is looking back to that. If you were to read and chart out Isaiah 40 through 66 specifically, you see a lot of what Mark is doing in his structure. I'm not going to dig into all of that. All that to say what this scholar points out is that it's the fulfillment of Israel's hope that they're, they're receiving a new exodus from exile. And that's what Mark is showing us in his text. That's the big picture. Now you drill down and you start to look at what Jesus is doing and you see how that's fulfilled. Jesus, uh, the key verse in the whole text is Mark 8, 29, when Jesus looks at Peter specifically and says, who do you say I am? Not who do others say I am, who do you say I am? Because the very actions of Jesus show that he was not just divine, but he was up to something big. Who do you say I am? He's trying to help them quantify who he is and figure out what he's doing. By that point, by Mark 8, 29, Jesus has already driven out spirits. He's healed people. He's been rejected in his hometown. He's eating with sinners. He's proclaimed his lordship over the Sabbath. And guess what? The bigger offense is right after that. He heals on the Sabbath, for goodness sakes. He's showing this authority. He sends out the 12 to do the same thing. You guys can go out and do this. You guys can release people from demons and heal them. He's telling parables about the kingdom. And it's so fascinating as you read the entire book of Mark. As you read the whole thing, you see that it's gotten actually pretty bad among God's covenant people. And and a great example of this, we're not quite to Mark 6 yet. I just want to look at Mark 1 really quick. Just a couple verses there. 23 through 25. It'll come up on the screen. Jesus is about to drive out an impure spirit in Mark 1, 23. It says, Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out. Let's stop there. A man who was in their synagogue. This happens over and over and over again. Among God's covenant people, what do you see? There's demons everywhere, possessing all kinds of people. Something's wrong among the people that needs to be fixed. Now the spirit calls out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus with the word, be quiet. Come out of him. That's what the disciples are seeing over and over and over again. Jesus is reversing the problem among the people. 
bringing them out of the bondage that they have to these spirits and to what's going on. And if that isn't enough, even before he asks this question still, even bigger things happen. The disciples are in a boat. Big storm comes. Jesus is asleep. And with a word, he calms the storm. That's a big deal. That's actually quite a big deal. Then right after that, a man who doesn't just have one demon like this, but legion, it says, that nobody can control. Jesus casts the demons out. Then right after that, he heals a woman who's ritually impure and really beyond hope. She touches the hem of his robe and he stops as he's on his way to heal somebody else. And that person he's going to heal dies. And then he raises her from the dead. Big things that he does. The disciples witness this all. The people around him witness this all. And what's so fascinating, Mark has this rapid pace. And when you read this, you see these things happen. What's the reaction in each one of these? When Jesus calms a storm, the disciples back off. They're afraid. When Jesus heals the man with the legion of demons in him, what does everybody do? They back off. They're afraid. Who is this guy? We couldn't control this. When Jesus heals the woman and he stops in the crowd, what does she do? She backs off. She's afraid. And even when they get the report on his way to heal this young girl, and the report comes, she's dead. Don't bother the master anymore. Jesus' first words, don't be afraid. Hold on. Don't be afraid. Not all hope is lost. Fear, fear, fear. Who is this guy? They can't figure it out. And so we get to the text that that will be our key right now. Mark 6, 45 through 52. It says, and here's another key word from Mark, immediately. Everything happens immediately in Mark. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against him. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when he saw, they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. He had just fed the 5,000. That's helpful. Their hearts were hardened. Not all the disciples were professionals uh, who spent their time on the lake, but some of them were. And if you notice, when the storm comes, if you read that this week, and then here they're fighting against the current, basically white caps on the lake, it's pretty tough. They see the ghost. In either case, there's fear there. That must have been pretty crazy to have a a storm earlier on in Mark that was so big that even those who spent their entire livelihood out on the lake were afraid. There's this fear all around. Even when Jesus calms that storm, they move to the edge of the boat, unsure of who he is, and here they're amazed. Okay, so they're transitioning to something. They're not afraid anymore. They're they're amazed at what's going on, but they're still having trouble. And in in, uh, the Jewish world uh, of this time, the sea represented chaos. That's what it meant. They saw the sea, even though the Sea of Galilee isn't huge, but when when a large body of water like that is chaotic, it's untamable. Only God has control of that sort of thing. Great examples from Scripture we heard from Isaiah this morning, Isaiah 51. 
It says, uh, 9 and 10, it says, Awake, awake, arm of the Lord, clothe yourselves with strength. Awake as in days gone by and generations of old. Was it not you who cut Rahab, they mean that for Egypt, to pieces, who pierced that monster through? Was it not you who dried up the sea and the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea so the redeemed might cross over? It's only God who can part the waters. It's only God who can control that which is untamable, the sea. And as we heard, the nations as well. At the very end of the book, in Revelation 21, where we kind of get into some of the depths of our hope here and the high point, first verse of Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. This is what God does. He can tame the sea. He can tame the chaos. It's untamable by anybody else but God. And Jesus comes in, and what does he do? He tames the sea. They knew this. They knew that that is only something God can do. So naturally, they're going to back off in fear. No prophet has ever done this. No prophet can do this. He steps in the boat. The waves stop. No prophet does this. Nobody has this kind of authority or power. God in human form is in the boat with them, and they can't see it yet. They're moving from fear, but they can't see it yet. And I want to point out a couple important things about all of this. We're still in the, the basic structure, Mark, but we can kind of use this as our, our guide still. Jesus, in both of the storm incidents, you notice he didn't prevent the storm, but he could stop it. He stopped the storm. He calmed it in process. And you see that all throughout Scripture. God doesn't always withhold the storm, although he's probably withholding more than we realize. But he can't stop it in progress. He can deliver us from the chaos going on around us at any point. And he does. He does. That's the story that Mark is telling us. I think I was thinking this week of uh, when Elijah in the Old Testament has just defeated the prophets on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal. Big victory. And what happens? He has to flee for his life because Jezebel is going to kill him. And he hides. And God says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. God can calm and work through those storms in our lives. And we see that the disciples aren't recognizing this yet, but the people are. Right after Jesus steps in the boat after walking on water, if you keep reading on, they land on the other side of the shore. And what happens? People come all from all over the place saying, heal me, heal this guy, heal this person. They're there with faith for what Jesus will do. And here's what I want to point out this morning. Jesus' presence in your life should produce faith, not fear. It should produce faith, not fear. Now, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, uh, scholars look at it and boast based on internal evidence and some external evidence. It appears that this is actually the testimony of the Apostle Peter, which explains why, if you dig into it, why the other Gospel writers would kind of look to this as a primary source to work with. It's an early Gospel. It's probably Peter giving us his uh, reminiscences, his testimony of his time with Jesus. It functions, if you read uh, in your book of the Bible, the introduction, it functions like a drama. They give you a very fine introduction to that in that book. Uh, But I would also characterize it a slightly different way because it moves fast. Uh, When I was, a a number of years ago, I worked for a a small Bible college. We were taking students down to Mexico on a missions trip. We stopped in southern Colorado. We were going from northern Colorado to El Paso uh, and then across. We were in southern Colorado, not far on our trip. Stopped for a bathroom break. I'm driving a 15-passenger van full of college students who all got out. 
That's right when the guy in the Red Bull truck pulled up and started handing out the energy drink to everybody that was just about to get into my van, to which I was saying, no, stop, we don't need that stuff. It was a wild ride, I'll tell you that. But Mark feels like the gospel on Red Bull to me compared to the others. It feels like it's fast-paced, moving immediately, immediately, immediately. This happened, that happened. Little explanation, it seems like. It's almost like it's just testimony, like a police report almost, with very little explanation of what's going on. And the way it comes off to the disciples, we get this privileged position in the gospel. But the way it comes off for the disciples seems kind of weird too. We were at dinner with with a family a number of years ago who had three kids about our age, the age of our kids. And one of them, the middle one of theirs was five. The one older was seven. Five-year-old just starts chatting away to me. I can't understand a word that she's saying. She's just going fast, 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 fast. Older sister comes as only an older sister can do. And she says, yeah, she uses real words, but we can't understand her. And just walks away. That's how the gospel of Mark, I think, looks to the disciples. He's using real words. He's using these actions, but we can't figure it out what he's doing. But you and I get a different position. Mark is bringing us in, oh dear reader, into a different position. We get a narrator's view of life. And we're the ones who get to look down at the disciples and say, come on, can't you get it yet, guys? Can't you get it yet? Not that they're a bunch of dum-dums. Let's not treat them that way. They're just not quite seeing it because this is a big leap for them to make. But here's the thing. Because we get that position, that kind of elevates our responsibility, doesn't it? Mark is bringing us in. He says, I'm going to clue you in from the beginning who this guy is. Now you know. What are you going to do with the information, reader? Who do you say he is? He's bringing us in on the ride too. As we draw closer to Jesus Christ, if he's in our life, it should produce faith, faith, not fear. When I say faith, I'm going to simply define it this morning as the belief that something is true. The belief that something is true, that we, we see the truth of what Jesus is doing and we believe it. And we can see the evidence of his activity. That's why we could have faith. We can look at it as the readers that Mark is bringing you along on Peter's testimony, and we can see, I see what Jesus is up to. My heart is not hardened. But you look at the disciples. The disciples are in danger in those boat incidents. They're starting to move, move in this one that we read, but if you look at the first one, where Jesus calms the storm, they back away in fear. As the people who are reading the book, we can look at them and say, oh, they're starting to look like the Pharisees who don't believe. They're starting to look like the Pharisees who back off from Jesus Christ. The disciples are starting to look that way. They're moving back. They're not hostile, but they're just, they're not quite there to believe, to believe. And even in the incident we read today, they didn't understand about the bread. It says their hearts were hardened. That is, they're dull. They're not quite getting it yet. And they're inching away. But in that instant, they start to get a little closer. They're amazed. We're intrigued now, Jesus. And Mark gives us this simple testimony. It's simple and relatively unadorned in so many ways in the Gospel of Mark and asks us the question too, which way will you go, reader? You're watching this whole thing play out. For us, the response simply needs to start by acknowledging what we see in Jesus. We see that he is, in fact, the one who rules over the chaos, who rules over the demons, who can heal those who are unhealthy. And he's making some very bold claims both in the signs, in the action, and in his words. 
divine claims are there. To quote that uh, scholar on Mark earlier, an Australian named Rick Watts, he says this, what first century Jew would ever imagine rewriting Passover around himself? Let alone command a storm, walk on water, forgive sins, and presume to set the words, his words on the same level as, or even over against, Torah, the law of Moses. If the human Jesus in these instances is acting with any kind of self-aware intentionality, then it must follow that he must have thought of himself, however difficult it might be for us to comprehend, in divine terms. He thinks he's acting as God. And he says, who do you say I am? You're seeing it all. Belief begins not simply by acknowledging, though, Jesus Christ. It begins by moving towards Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, they had problems. We get to see them. Guess what? We still have problems today. I don't know if you have any. I do. We have problems today. You know what's crazy? 2,000 years later, Jesus is still the solution. Still the case. Jesus is still the solution. It's fascinating to me. Uh, There's demon possession even in the house in the book of Mark. Among God's covenant people, there are significant and serious problems. And we live 2,000 years later where it seems like things are in pretty good shape. But can I tell you, statistically speaking, and both what I've experienced too, we kind of seem more bored than ever with life. If you look at the statistics, people feel more directionless than in a long time. And without identity, man, we search for it hard. Who am I? It's one of the great pursuits that seems to elude us. We are uh, a people who are very secure, yet we're very worried about the future. Incredibly worried about the future. We're lonelier than we've been in a very long time. Even though we're socially connected like crazy, we have very few friends and very few close friends for the average person. We are, in fact, less happy than we were, at least that's what the statistics show, than a decade ago. We're more in debt. We're really busy, frenetic, and we're stressed out. Anybody else feel that? We got problems. We still have problems today. Jesus is still the solution, as it turns out. And the thing about it is, Jesus invites the disciples and us to engage life on God's terms. Not the other way around. To engage life on God's terms, because when you engage life on God's terms, you move towards God's presence. It's the kingdom of God, not my kingdom, that Jesus is proclaiming. That's the kingdom I'm moving into. That's the kingdom you're called to move into when we move closer to Jesus Christ and engage in that belief. And we live in a day and age where the idea that somebody could calm a storm, cast out demons, and heal people seems far-fetched. I don't know if that's you this morning, but we're given the testimony. That's what Jesus did. And I would suggest that we need to edge closer to the one who makes those claims. Even if it seems hard, edge closer to Jesus to engage life on God's terms. Let me tell you a couple ways by way of testimony this morning that I have edged closer so that faith rules rather than fear in my own life. Uh, Last year, uh, I know a lot of you were in on this, was medically very difficult for our family. It was a long year for us. And especially last fall was really long. There was a lot put into my schedule and a lot of extra things that happened along the way. And I'm called to preach the word, and it's one of the things I I treasure 
that I get to stand here and do this each week, but boy, was it hard to do that just because of time. And I got anxious. I was a very anxious person. I was especially anxious last fall. And I remember preaching on Philippians 4. Cast all your cares on him. Be anxious about nothing and everything by prayer and petition. Hand it over. I said, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the anxiety that I have and I'm going to turn it into thanksgiving. And I've been doing that. God, if I get nervous about what I'm doing today, for instance, putting together a sermon, I don't have enough time. Nope, stop. God, thank you that I get to proclaim your word each week. I'm not going to be anxious about the task. I'm going to be thankful. When we get worried about medical concerns, God, thank you that I have the gift of my daughter and my other daughter and my son and my wife and my family and the gift of church family to support us and pray for us. When we get anxious about the big things or the little things, instead of making that overtake us and allowing that to overtake us, we say, no, God, thank you that I have that to even be anxious about in the first place. I'm not going to be anxious. I'm going to be thankful. Live into that faith rather than the fear. Another way, and, and we pray, preach this, I preach this, and we, we tried it out. Praying the names of God has been incredibly helpful to me because then I see God's sovereignty over things. I see God's, the fullness of who God is, not just in my life, but in this world and what God is doing. You pray God is omnipotent. You pray God is grace. You pray God, you are the intercessor. Your son intercedes on our behalf even when I don't even know what's going on or what I need. All of a sudden, you realize the all-encompassing power and, uh, of God in my life, and you move towards faith, not fear. And I'll tell you one other thing that I do. When I walk behind this table here for communion, I pray humility every month rather than pride. God, don't let me get a big head, being able to preach your word, being able to do the things I do, rather in humility, God. May I approach your throne. And the way that that might play out for us, maybe that's an area you struggle with, the pride versus the humility, then serve. That's what I've discovered. Let other people have the credit. Whatever it is, let God's glory show through us. Let thanksgiving rule us, not fear. Let the totality of who God is rule our lives. Not trying to micromanage our way to salvation. Jesus shows that he's sovereign. He rules over the chaos that tries to rule us, that tries to overturn us. And he says, who do you say I am? He's delivering us exodus from those things that would hold us back and bond us. He says, I'm your salvation. I'm the only one who can save you. Who do you say I am? Let's pray. God, for those of us who feel that we are in bondage this morning, whether it's to our schedules, whether it's to fear, whether it's to anxiety. Release us. Give us the freedom that only comes from you. Allow us to trade in our fear for faith and for hope that only you deliver. Allow us to recognize that there's nothing else even though many things will promise, there's nothing else in this world that can remove the chaos but you. We may have small victories in our day-to-day battles, God, but we'll never have the overall victory outside of your son, Jesus Christ, and the resurrection. That brings the victory. God, deliver that victory in our lives this morning. 
in this church this morning, in the churches of this community that have gathered together to worship you and share your good news. May we reflect your hope. May we recognize who you are and what you have done and draw closer to you, inching ever closer, ever closer, rather than than living in fear to live in the faith that you are sovereign over all. God, let that be our story and our testimony this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen.